You are listening to the Enormo cast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll say, say it's really, really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget our friends at Defiant Bean Roasters. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Norma at checkout for a discount on great coffee. Or click on the Defiant Bean banner at enormacast.com for more information. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is February 4th, 2014. It's about 8.30 Mountain Standard Time. This is episode 51. That's right, we are on the march towards 100. I've survived the first 50 and I'm going to Hunsky. On today's show, we have the first half of a long and very interesting interview with Lynn Hill. We've all heard of Lynn Hill. She is one of the greatest American rock climbers of all time, even if she tries to deny it in the interview. This interview clocked in at about 140, so I'm going to split it into two, put them out in the next couple weeks. I know, you're probably like, Calus, you fucker, that's cheating. Well, I'm also going to Mexico in a couple days, four or three weeks, with my friend and your friend and friend of the show, Hayden Kennedy, so... I'm going to go down there and hitch my wagon to that horse, which means I'm bringing a Jumar. Anyway, so the two halves of uh, Lynn's interview will come out in the next couple weeks. A little bit of business I want you to know about is that I am going to be at the Red Rock Rendezvous, which is another one of those great climbing festivals that happens in the end of March. I believe it's the 28th to the 30th. And uh, if you want more information about that, you can... um, Go to Mountain Gear's website. Mountain Gear puts it on, and uh, frankly, you can just Google it. I mean, you guys are good at the internet. You found this show, didn't you? But I'm going to probably be doing a live show. We're start, sort of working out the details still, um, but I'll be there and uh, talking to people and hopefully do a live show at the Red Rock Rendezvous this year. I've got a bunch of stuff lining up for the summer, too, which I'm pretty excited about. So anyway, hopefully we'll run into each other out there. In the meantime, if you want to help out the show, please consider heading over to enormacast.com. Click on the Help Out tab. There's a bunch of things you can do on there to help the show. A few things that are real easy to do just to help increase popularity. I did actually cruise over to iTunes and see that I'm pretty much maintaining my spot in what's hot in outdoor podcasts, which is kind of like being the sharpest spoon but that's kind of cool. Anyway, I'm, I was nestled there right next to the Dirtbag Diaries, actually, surrounded by gun podcasts. So I think we are sort of clinging together down there in the corner. The Dirtbag Diaries, still the perennial favorite in outdoor podcasts. 
but I'm creeping up on her, creeping up. An easy way to uh, support the podcast is also supporting our sponsors, Defiant Bean, Black Diamond, Maxim Ropes, ClimbingLawyer at gmail.com, and OverhangClimbing.com for you UK and European listeners. Head over there and enter Enormo10 at checkout and get a discount. But anyway, you guys need gear, need ropes, you need coffee. You may even need help with the law. So when it comes time to buy some gear, consider using our sponsors and let them know that you appreciate what they do for the show. All right, let's get on to the first half of the interview with Lynn Hill. In this installment, we talk a lot about our history but what she thinks about when she climbs, some of her philosophies about how she approaches climbing, some of the great and amazing figures that she's known in her time and was influenced by. So I've been wanting to talk to Lynn for quite a while, so I hope you enjoy this one. An interview with one of the best of the best, Lynn Hill. Yeah, and um, we're recording right now, so we're just going in here. All right, then. So um, I'm sitting in Lynn Hill's living room. Nice, With yes. Lynn Hill. Her son, Owen, in the other room, sick, home from school. So thanks for having me over, Lynn. It's a pleasure. Really excited about this. I've had too much coffee um, um, and a bunch of sugar. And I like to start these things by maybe talking about the relationship that I have with you and that, like most climbers, you know, I've known something about you for since I started climbing in 1989 and because you've been on the scene since way before that. But in particular in 1989, you know, this was, this was an era when you were, I think, competing in Europe still, but it was only a few couple of years before the nose. So when I started climbing, you were in sort of this transition period, it seems like looking at, at your history now. And so I may not have known who you were right then, but then only a few years later, you know, the media blew up with, uh, with you sort of reemerging back on the scene as this totally different climber um, after having freed the nose. 1989 was like a new life. I call it my second birthday. That's when I took a fall over 70 feet to the ground in Bux, France, May 9th, my second birthday. So I was also in the media for that, and I came back really fast. It was just like a little blip during the competition season, and I was competing then, and uh, took like four months, and I was back at Snowbird that year. Okay, so <clears throat> you start your book with that, actually, Climbing Free. Um, that cha- The first chapter talks about this fall, and, and I think a lot of people know about it, but could you sort of give us a quick little rundown of that as your second birthday? Well, the moral of the story, I'll start with that, is buddy check. Always look at your partner's knot. Um, I wasn't in the habit of that. I started a long time ago. It's almost 40 years ago now, 1975, and things were a lot different. We didn't have, you know, the equipment like the gris-gris didn't exist. We belayed, sometimes hip belayed, or a figure eight, or a stitch plate, which is kind of like the ATC today. But anyway, I didn't develop those habits early on. Today, when people learn to climb, you learn all these things, and it, it just becomes part of your pattern. So I think this is an important thing to stress. So it was set up as a top rope and I started to tie into the rope and I saw that my shoes were off to the side. So I stopped tying my knot and I went over to get my shoes 
It was a little bit cool, and I had a jacket on, and I didn't take it off, so I didn't look back at my harness and see that I didn't finish my knot because I had started it, left the rope in my harness, which miraculously stayed, and then since it was a top rope, it didn't fall out the whole time I was climbing up. Of course, I didn't feel the tension, and then I looked down, and I was distracted talking to somebody before I started climbing, which is also part of it, and then my partner was also distracted talking to that same person. And so I just leaned back and pulled the other side of the rope to cinch it to my harness, and that left me hanging on to a useless piece of rope because it was the other side of the rope, and I, I couldn't even hold on to the rope. So just, you, you pulled the rope out of your harness while you were basically on top of the climb. Yeah, I got and to And you the were anchor. holding onto this rope. Yep. That makes the whole situation so much more terrifying in my mind. It like, was terrifying, but I, it was so terrifying, I don't even remember that moment exactly. It was kind of like a dream, a flash of a dream. I see the, the face of my partner looking up at me like surprised that I was flying out, you know, from the top of the wall. It was, I'm sure, more horrifying for him to watch. But anyway, um, I, I guess I fall well and I bounce well. Right. So, but a tree kind of slowed me down, and it dislocated my elbow. It wasn't a big tree. It was a small green oak or something like that. But I was very lucky. Yeah, it sounds like and you, you. I thought I read that you maybe stress fractured your foot and dislocated your elbow. Yeah. And that was sort of the extent besides probably bruises and cuts. I cut my pectoralis muscle a little bit. Uh-huh. It's, sometimes I can feel it, but it's oh. not significant. Okay, so then let expand on this idea that this was your second birthday. Well, just the idea that I, I could have died. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a rebirth in a symbolic sense. Sure. And, you know, when you have a near-death experience, I think that it's normal to examine your life and question its meaning and, and its your vulnerability. Sure. So, of course, I, I thought a lot about that. I had a lot of time because I couldn't climb for mm -hmm. a while. And then it was a slow step-by-step -step process to get back and you have to be patient. So valuable lessons sure. that we all need to be reminded of, not in that way, but just patience and um, making an effort every day, being happy with that. That's interesting because I, I, there's something I kind of occurred to me about you in terms of your place in climbing. You were certainly one of the greatest and I'm going to flatter you a little bit here, so um, get used to it. But you were certainly one of the greatest, certainly one of the greatest American climbers of all time. And in fact, at certain points in your career, you were the best in the world, a guy or a girl. I don't really subscribe to that sort of labeling. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, everybody has unique talents, sure. and people have said that about me. And, and so the labels, um, certainly they point to somebody's achievement in an area mm -hmm. like mine being that I'm a woman, a small woman. Um, I was introduced to climbing a long time ago before it was even a sport. In fact, when I started climbing, I never even saw a picture of a rock climber before. I had no idea what it was. So we're talking dark ages. And, and in some ways, that's a huge advantage because nothing's been done. Well, in a relative sense, a lot sure. had been done. I just didn't know about it. And then there was a lot to be done. And and for the kind of athlete that I was becoming, even then as a, a young gymnast, climbing was perfect for me. It just suited me in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And I loved being outside. I loved going on camping trips with my family. And 
it was just so much a part of what I I liked, and and it was great to discover the sport and, and be able to kind of stay on the leading edge, so to speak, because you know there weren't very many other women around, right? And even the sport itself wasn't that big. I mean, I I, I totally agree with your your assessment of where you fit in in the beginning, and and even though I'm you know going to throw these accolades around, and and you you can take them however you want, certainly. I mean. <laughs> We, we unfortunately, in a way, you know, talk about you, obviously, when you're not around. And that, that's the funny thing is I was going to point out is that your name actually is sort of like this, like, uh, you, you get used a lot to represent certain things. I don't, you may not even know this. I'm sure you have some idea, but it's funny. You, you ever heard of that game Magic the Gathering with the little cards? Yes. Like, you know, I'd say kids play it, but actually a lot of adults do too. But anyway, you know, and they throw these cards that have these like magic spells in them. The Lynn Hill card gets chucked around all the time. You get used, you get used to help shorter people climb. You get used to help women climb. And you also get used to help people check their knots because I've heard, you know, someone complain about a move being too long and someone else there goes, what do you mean? Lynn Hill climbs stuff like that all the time and she's like four and a half feet tall or whatever. And then, you know, or some woman complains about a tooth thuggy and the Lynn Hill card comes out. Like, Lynn Hill can climb like that? What's wrong with you? And then I've also heard like, oh yeah, everybody screws their knot up. Even Lynn Hill screwed her knot up, you know? So Just didn't tie it. (laughs) You know, so it's funny because it's like whether you like it or not, we're like, we're like throwing your name around as these like lessons to people out there in the world. And I mean, the, 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 the not one is somewhat unfortunate, but, um, I think the, the looking at your career and looking at who you tried to be throughout your career, you know, the one where we throw you down to encourage women to climb, I think is totally legitimate because looking back at your career and reading about a lot of things you did, even protesting in competitions about the disparity with, with, uh, prize money between men and women, you know, climbing on the men's roots or insisting that the roots get set similarly and all these sorts of things. Have you felt that throughout your career, this, uh, this sort of idea that you could be something of a inspiration or symbol to women climbers or women athletes in general? Well, I, I definitely think it's flattering that people use my name, like you said, and, <laughs> and I do know that, um, especially the smaller women, when I do talks and they come up to me, I get uh, so many people saying that, oh, my, my husband or my boyfriend or my friend, whatever. Oh, Lynn Hill could do that. And so I know that one. Um, and it's, I, I mean, it's a lot of pressure. I, <laughs> well, to me, that's really easy in right. a sense. That's like, you know, beginning level. Um, where it gets tough is when you've got to um, go out there and be an advocate and protest. Or, you know, like in the, the example that you brought up, um, I had money to lose doing that, and I was a starving student, and I did feel that it was important to at least say it and and make an issue of it, because that's how progress is made. Mm -hmm. If you don't say anything about it, nothing will change, and I didn't think it was fair. Since I was a little girl, I didn't think that it was fair. There were a lot of things that I didn't particularly like. Even in our school, when... When it rained, you could wear pants to school. Otherwise, girls had to wear these horrible little skirts or dresses. And I didn't think that it was fair because my legs were cold and I sure. liked wearing pants. I wear pants almost every day still. 
And so there were things that, I mean, that's a small example, but um, privileges and uh, support in sports and things like that. I also went to the White House to celebrate the Title IX Amendment, which mm-hmm. gave equal funding to girls and women for education and sports. Um, there were a lot of things that weren't the same. And in my mother's generation, it was way worse. Sure. Girls weren't even allowed to do physical activities. It was like not only not supported, it just wasn't offered. And girls are supposed to act this way, and boys are supposed to act that way. And from a very early age, I knew that I wasn't that, and mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be that. Mm-hmm. And I was happy being who I was. So it gave me a lot of strength to follow through with what was true for me, because I knew that that was more true than this other stuff that didn't seem to apply. And you grew up in a pretty big family. Yes. Six or seven, is that what I read, kids? Seven. Seven. That definitely helped my independence. What was the ratio of brothers-sisters? Four brothers, two sisters. Okay. So there was, yeah, I mean, that seems like that would breed some sort of, you know, tomboyishness and, you know, having to hold your own amongst amongst all these siblings, if nothing else, especially with all these boys around. Yeah, but I pretty much shared a room with my sister, Trish, who's okay. a year and three months older than me. And we all had our independent things, too. I mean, we went on camping trips, mm-hmm. which were a lot of fun. But I don't think we really fought a whole lot. Okay. Even with my sister, I'm kind of more of a pacifist than anything. I don't like confrontation. And uh, I like things to be harmonious. So I always seek to find that on the rock or in my relationships. And sure. I've always been that way. And I don't really like asking for help. And that... My mother said that, you know, I tied my own shoes at two. And um, I just remember these childhood sort of ideas and memories and kind of compare with my son. And I was a lot different. I wanted to do everything myself, probably because I needed to, to some degree, but also because I liked being in control of my own, I don't know, my own body and, and what I was doing. And independence, I guess. So how old were you about when you did start climbing or, or um, the first time? Do you remember the first time? Do you have oh, some good memories of it? Yeah. I was 14 and I was with my older sister, actually both sisters, and my sister's boyfriend and my brother. So the, the boys went off and did their climb and my sister's boyfriend, Chuck, said, okay, so Kathy, you should teach the girls how to climb and we're going to go off over here. So Where were you? Big Rock in California. Okay. So it's a slab, which is not intuitive at all when you first start climbing. I had to wear my sister's shoes, which were these RDs, René de Maison, you know, like kind of stiff and boat-like shape. And and being a little bit big, my feet were sliding around in them, and, and you had to friction on a granite slab. And mm-hmm. there's not like distinctive handholds. There's like these little irregularities on the rock edges. I didn't know what the names of these were, but you know, little bumps and things. And and I said, well, what happens if I fall here? And she's like, oh, climb up there and clip that carabiner into the bolt and then clip your rope. So she explained (laughs) how to clip in because I was leading my first climb. You've never climbed before and you're leading. My sister was afraid to and climb herself. And your sister was sort of giving you some little bit of information <laughs> enough not to end up on your back on the ground. The funny thing is, she is very responsible. She's mm-hmm. the oldest of all of us. So sure. we would call her mom, just nickname. 
And she could tell, you know, how to tie the figure eight and the Swiss seat that we used as a harness and here's some shoes and here's a carabiner and all that stuff. But she didn't want to lead. And she figured that I would be able to lead. And she was right. I, I was a little nervous when I realized that, you know, once you clip the bolt, you, you climb above it sure. and then you're going to fall below it. And I kind of knew that this was not the safest thing or, or it didn't seem like what I expected. I don't know what I expected, but you know, when people say that it's a sport and there's special shoes and helmets and all this stuff, you think that everything is just, you know, pretty well set up, but in climbing, it really depends on you and not falling in as a general rule in the beginning, (laughs) do not fall. (laughs) And and I got to get this. So Chuck was, Kathy's Kathy's boyfriend. boyfriend. Okay, because then you went on to, to sort of um, go get into the climbing scene with with them. Yeah, is that right? Mostly with Chuck. Yeah, and my sister kind of veered more and more towards school, so she worked her way through college. So as you moved into the kind of climbing scene with uh, with with Chuck, and I, I would assume he probably had some some friends. Can you give us an impression of what it was like? This would have been the mid seventies. Um, is that or about the time frame, like 75, 76? I started in 75 and, you know, it was kind of like vertical backpacking. You go out on weekends and, and, you know, pretty soon it was any weekend I could. I was, Mm -hmm. I bought a car at 16 and, you know, I, I really, and I saved money to buy a crappy car, which I, I wrecked out in Yucca Valley, slipped on ice. I didn't know Mm -hmm. that you had to have tires with good, you know, treads anyway. Um, so at that time, I think I might have been 17 when that happened, and uh, it was—it must have been midwinter because it was snowing. It was really cold. It does snow in Joshua Tree oh, yeah. sometimes? <laughs> but usually we would go out and um, we'd head out either to Takeets or Joshua Tree on the weekends. And um, if I was climbing with Chuck, it would be some route that he's read something about or knows something about its reputation and and he'll go out and try it and and oftentimes he he had a lot of ambition to try things really that had a reputation or that were hard and i i was completely clueless and i'd sit there and belay him and uh you know fly around in the air if he fell like so one of these climbs was trespassers will be violated i wrote about this in my book because it was just one of those experiences that i do remember pretty well because he would go up to, I think it's like the first or second bolt, and there's only like three or four on the route. And he kept falling because it was very technical and you had to traverse to the right and, you know, really tiny little edges and you had to get your sequence perfect. And he kept swinging off and it was an unpleasant fall because it was swinging sideways. And he said, here, do you want to try it? And I, I got up there and and that was all he had to do was just sucker me and I would just tune into whatever it needed to be done and I I got past the crux. And then I realized, oh my God, look at this. This is huge run out that, you know, I got past the crux, but sure. now I'm really far away from the bolt and I'm I'm really committed because I can't go back. I have to keep going. And you know, sometimes you don't even see where the next bolt is. It's just like, do not fall. And so Sometimes it was pretty horrifying mm-hmm. to climb with Chuck because he would he would fail on a route and then I would go up and I would get suckered into finishing it. 
Well, it's interesting because it's like that's the way people had to learn how to rock climb uh, to a certain extent. I mean, it, it was a result of the the area you were you were climbing, and, and this is in Josh, is that right? That was Josh yeah. Tree. And so in that era, yeah, there were. I mean, those bolt, those one and two bolt roots roots exist all over that park. Or I don't know if they've gotten retro bolted or not, but but that was the style. So it's certainly one way to learn how to climb uh, in terms of just being forced into these situations that you have to get out of. I mean, it, it probably in the long run, looking back, you know, made you this pretty resourceful climber. I think that having started to trad climb first was so useful because you learn how to calculate risks and and be responsible and actually visualize whether you're going to make it or not. Because I won't just leap out there and go for something unless I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it mm-hmm. because of that instinct of don't fall. Right. And so there was this visual thing that would go back and forth and it happens really fast. I actually did a sort of like a little experiment with Russ Kloon when he was studying sports psychology and I think they called them meta thoughts. It comes from neuro-linguistic programming. But anyway, um, I think that those skills are really useful even for sport climbing. You can use it in daily life, just the idea that you um, recognize red flags and fear and you you know how to accept it instead of fight against it Mm -hmm. and then come to that clarity in evaluating the situation and finding the right solution. Yeah, actually, you know, this will maybe be a tangent, but one one person asked me to to sort of ask you about maybe a little bit about your mental state in climbing and kind of where your mind goes in terms of of when you approach climbing. Is there, you know, I guess my question is is do you have different ways of approaching different type of climbing, or do you think you this this thing you maybe were just talking about or something similar to that is what kind of exists when you go into that mode? Well, I think that there are so many different states of mind when I climb. It depends on the situation. Um, I've climbed for almost 40 years, so (laughs) it's evolved too. But it depends on if I'm doing it for kind of moving meditation. I'm just kind of like cyclists, they do cadence or mileage, and, and they don't really think too much. But climbing can be extremely um uh, just flow, like you're not thinking at all. If you are thinking, you're probably um, distracted thinking about something about your daily life. And, and that can happen. You, you can be climbing and suddenly you're not totally engaged in the moment. You're maybe resting or something and, and you start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. That happens. I think there's a lot of different states of mind, mm-hmm. even during the course of one climb. But generally, my state of mind is to you know, if I'm just engaged in climbing, is to look at the route and see it from sort of a general perspective. And then as I'm climbing, I'm, you know, in this process and, and I'm not 100% conscious of it. It's just happening. I can be conscious of certain aspects of it. And so I'm, I'm planning maybe two or three moves, hand, foot, hand, foot, you know, kind of visualizing where I'm going to go. And then when you're actually moving, there's a certain internal sensitivity of your balance points. And that's another thing that's kind of goes into the realm of um, having practiced it so many years, it's automatic. Mm -hmm. And it's like a a well-designed computer program. You know, it kind of just does its function and it's really easy. But if you get into the psychology of maybe what um, the person asked about, you know, how does she prepare 
okay, so if we're talking about for the nose or competition or something that's really important and involves my absolute best performance, that's a whole nother discussion. And uh, I remember reading all kinds of books, um, you know, about the inner game of tennis and, you know, warrior's way and all this kind of stuff. And um, I could relate to a lot of it because a lot of it is kind of, kind of, I don't know if you'd call it Zen or Buddhist philosophy, but pretty much that approach where you, you're you open and you, you observe and you're not judging and you're not reacting. You're just trying to make the best decision. And when your ego gets involved, you know, it's really... I think it's important to watch your ego and see why you're motivated sometimes. That's that's a whole nother tangent, but like I think it's relevant. Okay, we'll just take the nose. I was underneath the great roof before I, I had even free climbed that pitch. And just kind of thinking about what this climb meant to me and what it could mean for women and and this bigger meaning that had nothing to do with necessarily me. I was the, the medium making it happen. But if I was too attached to the outcome for me and my ego, it's too fragile. It's too, too much pressure. I knew that I couldn't do that. And I didn't want to do that. That wasn't where I was motivated from. So it might sound like a subtle difference, but it had meaning, but it wasn't so much the meaning attached to me as, as the, is the ability to do it because I knew it could be done. And that's maybe another thing that people find unusual about me or, or why does she think she can do it? And to me, it's almost the opposite. Like, why do you think you can't do it? You know, I always just look for the way to do something if I want to do something, you know, and that's how you kind of get better and are able to do things. Well, that's really fascinating because it, it seems to me that, it's always been this thing where so many people would call something impossible. And then it only takes sometimes a couple years after it gets done for it just to become routine. Now the nose has not, that has not, freeing the nose has not happened in that progression. But I mean, even if you go back to like the first time they saw Pike's Peak, some guy said that will never be climbed. And then, you know, now you can drive to the top of it or you'll never climb 511 or 512 is the top of the grade. It'll never get harder than this. And, and to hear you say that really speaks to, I think, what it takes to break through those barriers is to go at it from the, why can't I do it? Let's start with, I can do it, and maybe I'll prove myself wrong. But if we start from there, then then the possibilities are, are open for, for advancing everything. I think what it takes is a certain objectivity in your perspective. Not so attached, like I was saying, to the ego and, and the me part of it. Like, I remember, this is not exactly related, but... I was climbing in Volks and it was many years ago and 513 was hard. You know, it was hard for me. And I, I looked at the route and I was looking at the holds and thinking, this is just not hard. I know it feels hard, but people are going to be warming up on 513. I know it. In my lifetime as a climber, this is not hard. So it's just a matter of taking yourself out of it to see objectively what, what it is that you're looking at. And you know, the people that make those statements like a woman will never do this or, you know, that's impossible. And at one point, 510 was the definition of the limit of human ability. I find it interesting that um, people can be so short-sighted to think that there is a cap like that. Let me ask you another question on this mental game. Um, 
everybody deals with fear in climbing. True fear, like I, I don't want to hit the ground, oh, fear of failure, all these sorts of things. I don't know that I think in your sort of wider reputation, you're known as someone who pushes really dangerous routes. Uh, I've never known you, at least in the media, to be a free solar. And yet, as I looked through you know, your resume and did some research, you've done all these things. You've done difficult, scary routes. Particularly, I think I looked in some of the stuff at the, in the gunks had some some scarier ratings on it. And then just climbing every day, you know, even if it's not technically super dangerous route, deal with fear of falling all the time. And I think, you know, for all climbers, it comes into play and, and it'd be interesting to hear sort of in 40 years, what you've learned about yourself with, with fear or climbing on El Cap, even if the protection's good, you're, you're 2000 feet off the ground. So normal human reaction is to be a little bit fearful. Um, so yeah, what, what, what have you learned about yourself in terms of dealing with that? Well, I definitely have fear. Um, I don't want to fall. I don't want to hurt myself. Don't want to die climbing. But I'd say, first thing is you have to evaluate the risk. Is it really life-threatening? Or is it just, I don't want to fall because it's a scary feeling. It's uncomfortable. I, I deal with that just like anybody else. And the times that I've done those scary routes, like you're talking about in the gunks and, and in my earlier climbing, it was started out with just being naive sometimes, or I was tired and I didn't want to stop and, and fiddle in a nut because I thought it would be more tiring to put gear in than just to keep climbing. I remember making that decision a couple times. Or I, I thought, well, I really ought to put protection in, but this is a really big you know, crack. My hands are comfortable in it and it's tiring. I didn't quite probably know how to relax, um, straight arm. And I put in a bad piece and my partner, um, came up and said, you know, that, that protection was really bad. And I kind of knew that. So that was kind of early on. But then, um, in the gunk, some of those roots, I didn't really know how dangerous they were going to be. It was just part of the ethic of the times that you try things from the ground up in this very pure style. And you wouldn't feel good if you cheated in any way. So it was kind of this really noble, pure approach to climbing and being able to deal with fear was part of the success of your performance. And I didn't really fall that many times, fortunately, because I think in a few of those cases, they would have been really bad falls. And like I said, I'm glad that I started out trad climbing and that I was able to stay clear and make the right decisions, but it isn't something I look for. I don't really want to get hurt climbing. It's not a game that I I put foremost in my life, especially as a mother right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more important for me to stay healthy and push myself in other ways. And fear can be a part of it, but more just like scary airball falls versus you know ground falls or bad protection. Mm-hmm. And free soloing, I just won't even allow myself to do it. I can totally appreciate how nice that feeling is to be climbing without a rope and in control, but it would be selfish of me to put myself at risk like that when I'm in a position where I'm somebody's mother, you know, I'm, I'm not really able to cast my life out so easily. Sure. Not that somebody who's soloing thinks of it that way, but it is a risk that you don't need to take. Yeah. I think, I mean, most, most people that start families change their way of climbing it seems to seep into the brain to to start to uh to think about those sorts of things as opposed to being 
you know, wild and free and with no connections to, to anybody. But I actually was pretty reasonable even before having a kid because I wanted to have a kid. But even if that wasn't a reality, I think it's still important to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. And I don't want soloing that much to risk as much as you have to risk. You know, I mean, one life, if you make a mistake, rock breaks, a bird flies around, a snake, who knows what unexpected thing could happen. But it happens. There have been numerous very good free soloists that aren't here today. Certainly, yeah. So I'd like to switch gears. Well, um, I want to keep talking a little bit about your history and your climbing career as well as your philosophy. Um, so I have some some people here that I think you would consider influences on your on your climbing, and so I just want to bring some up, and maybe you could, if you want to sort of define the relationship that you had, um, but more we'll talk about maybe what you learned from them mm-hmm. or how they influenced your climbing. Um, we talked about uh, your your sort of original mentor Chuck already, so I'll skip that one. Um, what about John Yablonski? John Yablonski, he was. A good friend and also somebody that was very volatile. Um, and I felt that he he put a lot of importance on our relationship. He thought we were like soulmates and you know, past lives and meant to be together. And um, so he had a little bit of delusion about that. But I understood that we also did have a sincere friendship. Mm-hmm. And it was based on our bond uh, and, and love of climbing. And... We met when, you know, free climbing was done in very strict traditional style. And, and he was kind of like a, a ninja warrior purist. And, you know, he would risk anything to do the best job that he could, mm-hmm. which was, you know, again, where sometimes I wasn't sure where the boundaries should actually be because I could see that he was he would go too far. And, you know, we'd see him soloing and shaking and he would be doing it in front of his friends you know, me and, and the handful of people that would meet every weekend, including John Backer and Michael Klinsky, Mari Gingery, and uh, Dean Fidelman, uh, his girlfriend, Jessica Perrin. So there was, you know, kind of a revolving group of people. And it was a very close community mm-hmm. because we felt like we were just, you know, very privileged to have Joshua Tree in these places that we'd climb in to ourselves in a sense. It wasn't like a world destination so much, and there weren't that many people establishing roots. So you can imagine that it was a really important community for all of us. So Yabo was a brother and also um, somebody that I think was inspiring because he tried so hard and, and he wanted to do it so well. And he wasn't going to let his own personal desires get in the way. He was really able to like eat mayonnaise sandwiches for, you know, a week at a time because he wanted to be out there climbing. I mean, that for most people, that's unreasonable and it's crazy, but there was a certain beauty in his dedication and, you know, there weren't very many options. If you wanted to be a full-time climber, it wasn't like you had any sponsorship. You had to make some money and then go live out in a climbing area somewhere. And usually that meant in the tent or, you know, or less. He, sometimes he didn't have anything except for the bag on his back. I wasn't willing to live quite that way. 
that's why I decided to get a college education. Right. <laughs> you did for a bit, though. I mean, you obviously I, dabbled in that lifestyle here and there. Yeah, in the in summertime. Camp 4 and whatnot. Yeah, I definitely was living a dirtbag lifestyle for weeks at a time, but not years at a time. I um, decided that I would rather have a, um, a better quality life by bettering myself and getting an education that could serve a purpose that would actually pay me a professional wage so that I could actually go climbing and have a car and, and food and, you know, some comforts. And so, yeah, I, I did get a degree in biology, which I didn't really use for my profession directly, but it does make me feel good that I, I got through school and that I made that choice to be, you know, a better person through educating. Well, I don't know if it makes you a better person, but better educated and better able to give back. Mm -hmm. That's all. Well, let me pull out another one. Actually, the, one of the, the nicest women of climbing I've ever met, uh, Mari, Mari Gingri. She's a dear friend. Um, you guys I, climbed El Cap together early on. Is that, I yep. read that, like the shield? Is the that shield. Right? Yeah. Way back. We didn't really know what we were doing. We weren't aid climbers. We were free climbers from sure. Southern California, but Yosemite was the rite of passage, big walls and... They weren't done free back then. I mean, parts of them, because it was simply easier and more efficient. But you weren't judging yourself if you took and held on a piece. It was more free climbing between gears so that you could get up faster, because big wall climbing takes so long, especially if you're nailing mm -hmm. in the head wall of the shield or something. It's tedious. So our boyfriends, John Long and um, Mike Klinsky, said, okay, here, take these pitons, and yep, yeah, there's really not much to know. You just hammer them in, and you tie them off like this. <laughs> and so we cast off. We could barely carry all the gear and hauling in the, in yeah, the beginning. Yeah, she's not any bigger than you are. She's a little bit right. bigger, but probably doesn't weigh much more. <laughs> and so it was pretty funny watching us haul. It took two of us to haul the bag, you know, because, of course, the lower the angle, the harder it is to mm -hmm. haul, and the beginning of El Cap is not that steep. But anyway, uh, it took us six days. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when we were younger, our personalities weren't developed as much as they are now and, and we're comfortable, more comfortable in ourselves. And I think our friendship has grown as we have. And uh, so I remember being on that wall. And, and it is kind of a solitary thing in a way, even if you're on the wall with somebody, because most of the day you're either leading or you're belaying. Mm -hmm. at, at night it's different, but um, I don't remember talking a whole lot on the wall because we were just like on this sea of granite, just, you know, trying to figure out how to pioneer our way up that thing. You know, it wasn't pioneering in the sense of breaking new ground, but for us it was, we didn't know what we were doing at all. Mm -hmm. And I remember hammering a lost arrow in and it wasn't in that deep and, and it was actually kind of an expanding flake. And I thought, ah, well, that's good enough. I'm kind of in a hurry. I want to get up to the next piece. And I tied it off and I'm standing up and it ripped out and I took a, a backwards fall into this dihedral and was like, oh, I guess I should pay more attention to these pitons. You know, I had a couple scary moments on walls like that, but I think it was great to build character. A vertical retreat is a good idea for people to do, you know, every once in a while, once a year, once every two years or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, totally. But Mari was, Mari was a, a great partner then. And we would, you know, try to figure out our own sequences on boulder problems or roots or whatever, because 
we were smaller than most of the rest of the guys and and her approach was so graceful um she's kind of like a ballet dancer very you could see she's very light and and uh uses this sort of a keto approach where you you take the uh the force and you redirect it you know sure. she just never looked like she was ever really trying very hard but she was didn't show it and that's kind of how her personality is she's very observant and patient and um supportive and tries to do the right thing tries to be respectful of other people and do her part she's um still working at the lab at UCLA she does um i guess it's called electron microscopy and basically research mm-hmm. really high level research and so she's followed her career like she has in i mean in academia like she has in her life she just has gotten better and better at it okay another one um from from back in those days actually uh Beverly Johnson Beverly uh I didn't know her as well as I would have liked to but I met her in connection with the survival of the fittest mm-hmm. Mike Hoover who is her husband said why don't you call Lynn and ask her if she'd like to compete in this event and I was so thrilled. Beverly Johnson called me and yes, of course I'm going to compete in this survival of the fittest. That was the competition where the prize money wasn't equal at first. Meeting her in person, I was really happy that she was so easygoing and she was the kind of person that she would undermine the the seriousness of it if it was really scary or difficult, she would be like, "Ah, yeah, it's a little scary, but it's okay." Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. And so I could imagine her being this, you know, one of the few women in Camp Four before my time, just hanging out with the guys and not making a big deal about it. And you know, sure, we're, we'll go for it. Her and uh, Sibylla Hechtel did the first female ascent of El Cap in 1973, and I don't know how many days it took them, but I don't think it took them that long. Then Beverly did a solo ascent of El Cap in 1978, which I was very impressed by. It was a year before she called me for this competition. So I I was happy to know that there were other women that were actually adventurous and feminine without being too prissy or you know just normal. To me that was normal and I didn't have very many examples of women that embraced all these qualities that I appreciated. All right, well let's jump into the future from there a little bit. Um Catherine Desteville. She was touted as my rival in the media and it was kind of funny because you know we were these pawns in a media game in that sense and yet as people we were also unique in that we were pushing levels of climbing in our respective countries at a time when it wasn't happening and she was a very and still very talented climber very intuitive um very fast she's one that i'd say probably doesn't even ask herself how did i do that she's she's not like trying to analyze it like i i analyze things to try to learn from it and also to try to teach and i'm kind of fascinated by it even though i also just climb you know intuitively at this point i mean and what does intuitive mean it's it's kind of a combination of experience and just your body's natural reaction to something but i see catherine as an extremely intuitive climber and as a person i th- i think she's driven without being you know super stubborn about it um i think she was pushed a lot by people around her in her career 
and then realized, well, yeah, that, I can do that. Yeah, sure. That seems like a good idea. And then she would set her mind to it and achieve it because she has the ability and people around her saw that and they saw that as a commodity because in France at the time, and probably still true today, but especially back then, you know, when you looked at how climbing was developing as a sport, the French were really getting into it. They were starting the competitions. The French Federation was getting really into studying it as a sport and, you know, the psychology, and they have a really well-developed uh, system to become a guide. You have to know all kinds of things that really aren't even taught here. Um, the pedagogy, or what is it, the, the study of teaching and even orienteering and all that stuff. So they were putting a lot of resources in it. And um, she even got sponsored by Whirlpool at one point. You know, it's an American company, but they they were really big over in Europe. And the, the idea was throw money at these heroes because that will bring the sport along. And I think that they were right. Patrick Edlanger and Catherine were both on primetime TV at a time when there were only a few stations and everybody saw them and everybody thought it was so cool. Patrick with his bandana that he pretty much copied from Ron Kauk, mm -hmm. seeing it in Yosemite and, and the slack line and the jogging and all this stuff. Um, but it was, it was a whole new kind of approach to sport, you know, this sort of lifestyle. And so I think that both Catherine and Patrick profited from that and were brought right to the forefront of um, being a star, not just rock climbing star, but they were like big names in Europe. Certainly. France. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. As you were. Not as much so because I was La Petite yeah. American. Yeah, yeah, you know, of course. I was not one of them, really. I was just one of the players in the game. And I think they appreciated that. But um, there's nothing like being from that country. If you're a star of France, then right. you are. Yeah, of course. Of course. Okay. Um, this is sort of the, we'll go back in time a little bit. And, and, and in terms of your, again, your lore, your mythology, the big one is John Long. Of course. I thought you were going to ask about him first. Well, you know, I, I have an idea of a segue. So. Okay. Oh, well, John Long is, he's an amazing character. Um, he's bigger than life. He's one of these people that um, loves entertaining. And sometimes when he tells a story, you don't know which part of it was true and which part of it was embellished. And I'm not even sure he knows sometimes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really good story, and he's very creative in the way that he tells stories, his word choice and and just the imagery he uses and, um, and humor. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that he said to me in, in this sort of way was, I think I was about 17 in Yosemite in, you know, the Camp 4 parking lot or something. And he recited this poem, The Naked Maiden Soloing. And it's basically this woman who just floats up this route without a rope. And, and he, you can kind of imagine he's the guy in the story following this woman and, and just idolizing how beautiful she is as she's climbing. And so he follows her and he gets to this point on the face where he's about to fall and she throws down a, a rope for him. And he's like, oh, thank God. And he ties into it and he gets to the top and he looks around for her and there's nothing but a note um, that says something like, he can be nobody's fool or something, mm -hmm. you know, kind of just funny that... She was like, eh, never mind, and, and runs off kind of. And so it was his story made the woman seem like she was really cool 
and uh, very strong, and and he was this fool, you know, and it just kind of was funny mm-hmm. and um, self-effacing, and sometimes that irony that makes uh, writing and stories interesting. So that was um, very early on. I was impressed with John, and plus he was just physically um, very beautiful body, very muscular, um, and uh, certainly not shy. So you guys, I mean, spent a few years together, and particularly an era where you were traveling around the United States. So what do you think the sort of lasting influence he had on you as a climber? Well, I guess at the time when we met... I was used to athletics in a certain sense and pushing myself in a certain way, but I wasn't like so uh, bold as to say, yeah, let's go do this and let's go do that. And so John, being such a strong personality, was going to go straight to the prize and, you know, leap out there. However good you had to be to do that, it didn't matter. That's what he wanted to do was the thing that was most alluring. So he kind of opened my eyes to even trying to do that stuff. You know, like I didn't really think of climbing as achievement oriented so much, but I think he, just by his ambitions, kind of pushed me along in a way that was good for me. And he was the one that said, hey, Lenny, you have little fingers. You should go try to free climb the nose, the famous, you know, small fingers thing, which I think is funny. But he was right. Or no fingers. Or or nine yeah, and a half want, fingers. Right. <laughs> yeah, the other guy that's done the roof is is uh is got one and a half. Actually Beth did it too, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So small fingers also- or nine and a half fingers. <laughs> no, that, that's the joke of it. It's not right. about your body size. It's yeah. not about any of that stuff. It's about like what John represents here and what I'm trying to say is that doesn't really matter all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Here's what we want to do right here. Let's focus on this. You want to do this? Okay, let's try to do that. And sure. so when we set our minds to whatever route it was, we would always end up doing it. I don't remember ever failing on anything. We would always just, okay, so let's try. There was a route in Independence Pass. I still haven't been back since then. It was, I think, 1978 or 9. Is it P-Brain? P-Brain, Yeah. That one, and there was another one, Seventh Octave or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just remember those two routes. And um, P-Brain was scary, I think. Mm-hmm. He led that one. And and I read something that he wrote about it not long ago, and he said something like, I made a comment to him afterwards, like, John, I, don't, I was very uncomfortable with you doing that because it was like 12C soloing in the beginning of it, and if he fell, it would have been a bad fall. But he he wanted to do the this route, so you know he kind of pushed it, and and I was really glad that he didn't fall. But I was like, I said, look, just be careful. And he he the way I said it to him made an impression on him mm-hmm. that I cared so much that he don't push it, you know, beyond a certain point. But anyway, um, he also pushed me to break the world record in the bench press, which I don't know if I ever actually did, but I I got to 150 pounds. And then I realized this is really strange. This is changing my musculature. I'm getting triceps that are too big and mm-hmm. it's competing with my climbing muscles. And I didn't enjoy lifting weights, but he raised the bar. He said, okay, let's, let's see if you can raise the bar and do this because, you know, he had so much confidence in me that he thought I could do it, which I did do, but it was making me gain weight as well. Mm-hmm. Like 
muscle, and I just, I didn't like it. All right, thanks for listening to the first half of the Lynn Hill interview. Owen was also there in the background. He stayed home from school, as I mentioned, and uh, stomachache. That was his ploy. Stomachache's easier than, than fever. You don't have to mess with the uh, with the thermometer. Anyway, pretty soon he was outside doing cartwheels, so I think his mom figured it out. If you are itching to learn more about Lynn Hill already, you can uh, order her book, Climbing Free, My Life in the Vertical World, which is out of print, but you can get it from lynnhillclimbing.com. Lynn has a bunch left, and uh, I'm sure she'd be happy to sign one if you emailed her. So check that out. And uh, yeah, coming up is going to be a pretty detailed discussion about um, the nose, freeing the nose, and how she went about it. It was quite a bit different than what people do today. So look forward to that in a couple weeks. I'm off to Mexico, but I'll put that thing out for you in a couple weeks while I'm gone, magically. And uh, hopefully I'll come back in one piece. And I think... Now my sign-off has a little bit more weight since Lynn Hill brought it up in the beginning of this episode. The Lynn Hill admonished all of us to check our knots. So do it. Our next guest is uh, ranked number one, number one in the world uh, by the Association of Sports Climbers International. Should ladies and gentlemen please welcome the best rock climber in the world, Lynn Hill. Hi. Nice to see you. Thank you. 